You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. Everyone have Haggai chapter 1. Now let me give you the background now that you have that. How many people are still looking for it? It's okay if you are. Haggai is what's referred to as a minor prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, Our Bibles broke up into 66 different books, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. And really, if you're kind of new to faith or trying to figure this whole thing out, the Bible is not 66 different stories. It's one story explained over thousands of years through thousands of people's lives. Uh, It's not 66 books that are all doing their own thing, but it's really about this, what we can refer to as the redemptive arc. Now, it's a story. It starts off in a garden, this beautiful place. And then there's the fall of mankind, which we understand to believe Adam and Eve. And when they sinned, rebelled against God, sin entered into the world, fractured humanity. It fractured creation. But at that time, God sent forth a promise, says that I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to restore all things. So then God comes to a man named Abram, or as we refer to, Abraham. And if you grew up in church, you're scarred with this song called Father Abraham. And it says, Father Abraham had many sons. And the whole time you start marching and moving. And at the end of it, you wonder, what does Abraham have to do with marching and moving? And if you're not from church, God bless you. You're not scarred like us, all right? So God comes to this guy named Abraham and says, hey, I made a promise back in the garden to Adam and Eve that I was going to fix what they screwed up. And so I'm going to do it through you, through your seed, through your offspring. So God makes a promise to Abraham. And then we can track historically through the Old Testament as this promise, this embryonic seed, begins to give birth and give root. And these prophecies, one after another, begin to kind of outline and to fill in the blanks of what's happening in the Old Testament until finally they start to recognize the way that God's going to make all things new is through the Messiah, through a person well, they actually, interestingly enough, they thought that it was going to be this victorious king that would show up and make all things new. They thought, in essence, because of the Old Testament prophecies, some people would say they were looking for a lion. But instead, if you will, Jesus shows up as a lamb, a suffering servant. The king of all creation, God himself, God incarnate, comes into human flesh and dies the most disgusting death, crucifixion. Now, you know, you, you see people like rocking all these crosses and stuff. And do you have them on jewelry? That's totally your preference. But crucifixion is not something... Today, it's more uh, beautified in a sense. We think of a cross, we think it's a beautiful image. Uh, in Roman culture, to talk about crucifixion was totally inappropriate. It wasn't supposed to be uttered on people's lips because it was the most shameful of death. Really, it was the death that was given to insurrectionists. So then we can track this promise and that Jesus shows up and absorbs the penalty of sin and death and curse and then through his spirit says, I'm offering you a new way of life right now. So as Christians, we understand that we participate with God in his new creation right now. Now, outside I can look and all I have to do is put on Fox News or CNN or pull up the Huffington Post and you can see all types of um, just total social breakdown right now in our world. So this idea that we can say that Jesus came, if I was saying God came to the earth, and yet we look outside and we think there's all this social breakdown, economic breakdown, all types of breakdown, but yet God has provided a new way, which we understand is through Christ, we can participate with him, and then ultimately he'll return and make all things new. That's really, really good news. 
So we find ourselves today, though, in the book of Haggai, which we have to kind of rewind before the coming of Christ, before Jesus shows up on the earth, and in this wonderful time of rebellion of God's chosen people that come out of Babylon. How many of you remember Daniel in the lion's den? Uh, nobody does. Okay, Daniel in the lion's den. This guy gets thrown into lion's den. Well, Daniel was a part of the people of God that were taken into exile into Babylon. Here's God's chosen people, and they're thinking, wow, God's made a promise to me. The next thing you know, Daniel's in a lion's den. They're in Babylon, which isn't necessarily a vacation. Is they're really the most pagan society at that time. And they're in exile for 70 years. And then God, through Jeremiah, prophesies about this. And then ultimately, after 70 years of being in exile, they're brought back into the promised land. And they follow these minor prophets, if you will, because of the context of the book. That they follow them back. And this is what happens. The book of Haggai, they come back. And God says, rebuild my temple. It was destroyed. So they start to rebuild it. About halfway in, they give up. Now, what I think is important about that to understand is that, honestly, if I look at the state of the church at whole, if I look at people's lives at whole, this book is so timely. It's almost like Christians, we know how to get out of Babylon or get out of sin or get out of whatever. But when it comes into actually doing what we're supposed to do, it kind of goes, well, what do we do? So you meet kind of disgruntled Christians that are out of the world but not really into the kingdom. They're kind of stuck in between. Like, well, I'm out, but I'm not in. And what happens is, uh, at this time, they stop building the temple, and then we find that they end up setting into this laziness. So let's read together, starting in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord, your host, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Let me me unpack what's happening here. People of God come out of exile. They stop building the temple. They just kind of put it in park, and they're here. Now, let me just make one real quick note. Paneled house is not like 70s paneling. All right, like my house had paneled house, like paneled, that wasn't, that wasn't good. Now, when he's talking about paneled housing here, he's not talking about a nice Brady Bunch house. He's talking about something that was put together, paneled. It was actually built together. And at the same time, the prophet's saying, your house, you built this wonderful life for yourself. But when you look at the temple, it's totally run down. But yet you say to yourself, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. I'd rather have kind of my priorities of what life looks like, but when it comes to God's temple, it's not time yet. So Haggai comes up and goes, how can you say it's not time? You live in a paneled house that's all wonderfully put together, but yet God's temple is broken down. So he says, now is the time. Now's the time to build. Now's the time to move forward. You know, what's interesting is, uh, I'm not going to, you know, for being 40 years old, I've experienced a lot in life. And, no, not yet. It's amazing, though, that tomorrow never comes. If you're James Bond, tomorrow never dies. But tomorrow never comes. 
And with, with tomorrow, it's interesting because you, it's almost like, well, let's do this. And we, we've even noticed this with the church calendar. It's incredibly hard to plan the future. It's almost like days slip through your hands. You know, we've got a wonderful outreach that we're going to give more info about, but it's the last week of June called I Heart Scranton, which we're going to be working at Weston Field doing a great community block party Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. But it's amazing because as we put together our calendar for this summer and really look at what this thing looks like, I start looking at the days and I'm like, oh my goodness, my younger brother's getting married. I'm going on vacation. Jesse and Ashley are going on vacation. Mark and Nicole are going on vacation. Ben and Crystal are going on vacation. So-and-so's out of town. I start looking at the calendar and it's like, I've got all this incredible excitement for summertime. How many people know how long summer lasts in, in Scranton? About three weeks, all right? No, like maybe 12 if you're lucky. Like, we got robbed of spring. We've got one month of spring, and typically spring just goes into deathly hot summer, and then everyone goes, oh, fall's here for like a week, and then it snows. So, like, tomorrow never comes, though. If you really look at planning out your calendar, it's like, I want to do this, I want to do this. And if you don't set a deadline, if you don't have a real positive deadline, tomorrow never comes. It's like, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. Well, that's really what happens in in this setting here is that they look at what God's desiring to do. Now, we have to recognize, why does God want a temple? Why does God want a temple? That's kind of a funny funny thought. I mean, if we're looking at it, kind of looking back, why does God want a temple? Well, back in the book of Exodus, verse 20, God says a statement, which I think is really interesting. He says, I am the Lord your God. Don't bow down to any other gods. I'm a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. Has anyone seen, um, I guess it was Tim Burton's rendition of uh, Alice in Wonderland? Anyone see that? Or maybe you've read the books and things like that. I was watching it on on a plane. I'm sitting there, and it's really crazy. If you take a sleeping pill and watch that movie, it's bad news. All right? I was on the way back from Africa, and I was like, whoa. So, but on the way back, I'm watching this thing, and you'll remember the Queen of Hearts in that movie. And it's so funny because everything, her line over and over and over is, off with his head, off with his head, off with his head. If you haven't seen the movie, just take watch it or at least Wikipedia or something. But you watch, you watch this thing and it's really interesting because people begin to build their lives around the Queen of Hearts and they have fake noses because she likes the big nose. And the next guy's got a big ears and he li- she likes the big ears. So people start to build their lives around her insecurity. And they start to build their whole lives around it until ultimately the facade begins to unravel and they see, oh my goodness, that we're building this thing around you. Noses start falling off. And they're like, what is this? Because they built around the insecurity. Now, why does God want a temple? When he says in Exodus, I'm the Lord your God, have no other gods before me, we really have one or two paths to take. Either God's incredibly insecure and that he created humans because he doesn't have enough self-confidence that he needs puny little weak humans like ourselves whose lives fall apart on a daily basis. He needs their affirmation to feel better himself, very much like the Queen of Hearts, who kind of pushes people and suppresses them by fear to give her affirmation. Or, we were created for something more. I would suggest this. God is the only being and, and the only, uh, anything in the created order, and he's, of course, above the created order, that has the right to be jealous. His jealousy is the most selfless thing he can do. Any other person that's jealous, in being jealous, they're putting themselves above you. But if God was not jealous, the very thing you would be created for, he would be robbing you from. Hope that makes sense. God's jealousy is not something fear-based that he needs people's attention. He doesn't look at us and go, man, you know, as if we're, when we're worshiping, you know, like, 
you know, like, you get, have you ever had like a real itchy part on your back and you just can't reach it? And you're just, you know, it's like people talking on Bluetooths. You can't see the Bluetooth and you think, what's going on there? person's pumping their gas. Come on, you know what I mean? You're reaching for something. Everyone goes, what's going on? You got this itch and you get a stick out and you're trying, you just can't get to it. You know, when, when we're worshiping, we're not scratching God's back as if he goes, oh, I love when Will worships. Right under the shoulder blade there. I'm a little weak this morning. I need a little more worship. God is not in need of anything. So for him to be jealous, for him to say in the book of Haggai, rebuild the temple, he's not saying this because God's like, oh man, I really need, you know, I need some attention here. It's been a couple thousand years. You realize, what you, no, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that people have departed the very thing that they were created for. And we see this. It says this, when Haggai shows up and goes, you've built your own house, yet you've neglected the temple. That's what happens in our society, in our own culture. People build careers, jobs, family, whatever that is. People spend more time on Farmville and Facebook than they do knowing Christ. They build up a career and find their identity in something which we see can never satisfy. Haggai looks at him and says this, you clothe yourselves with clothes, but you're still cold. You put money in a bag and it falls right through. And how many people know it doesn't matter how much money you make, you're always going to want more. You're always going to want more. It doesn't matter how much you have, you're always going to want more because there's something in us, as we sang this morning, this existential longing for something beyond this world. C.S. Lewis would put it that exact way. If nothing in this world can satisfy us, the most logical conclusion is that we were made for another world. Now, if you're currently satisfied, I'm very happy But if you, for you, but if you don't know Christ, you will come to a point, an intersection, or a cross point in your life when you realize that this world is very plastic and it's shouting out something beyond the here and now. So what do we do with it? When God says, build a temple... You know, now, now as believers, we, we have a response. And I want to suggest that there's two ways to go about this. Uh, a right way and a wrong way. And before we get to the right way, I want to show you the wrong way. Turn with me to the book of John very quickly. So we understand that God desires a temple. He's jealous, but his jealousy is selfless. It's not jealous in the fact that he's insecure and needs us, but that we're insecure and need him. So if he wasn't jealous, he would actually be deceiving us because that's what we need most. Uh, it's, it's almost like the idea, and you might think, well, that's kind of uh, insecure still, but I would even suggest the idea of, of a, you know, a parent with a kid running in front of the car. The parent doesn't sit back and go, oh, just do whatever you want. No, the parent jealously jumps out and stops the kid. He's imposing his will on the child, revealing what it is. So John chapter 2, let's fast forward a few um, about 590-some years, I believe it would be, around this time. After Haggai comes, the temple is now rebuilt, it's finished. And at this time, Jesus now arrives on the scene. Jesus comes in, in John chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I want you to, to pay attention to that word, Passover. We're going to talk about that just in a moment. Verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep, pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, 
Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17 says, His disciples remembered that, and it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, what does it say? The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now, again, I know we're doing a lot of rewinding, and come on, you know what TiVo is. You're used to this. So let's rewind back to another show. Go back a few thousand years back in the book of Exodus when God was delivering the children of Israel. They come out through the Red Sea, and it was at that time that God instilled the Passover. The Passover, thankfully, is really a wonderful word. It translates into English for us from the Hebrew. Passover. So that's really good, all right? It simply means this, that God passes over. What took place is that in Egypt, God looked at the children of Israel and he said this, my judgment is going to come to each one of your houses. I'm going to reveal my judgment in that moment, but I'm going to provide for you a way to be passed over. Passed over. And what will that be? It would be a sacrifice, an innocent lamb. Now, What that simply means is this. When the Old Testament, we have to understand, again, this is a big story. There's an unfolding of a story that's going on. It's almost like in the Old Testament you see the silhouette or a shadow, and in the New Testament you see its reality. So in the Old Testament, God's saying, I want to show you that someday I'm going to provide the true, real Passover, and you'll never have to worry, you'll never have to be scared of my wrath or my fear, you'll never have to do it, and even right now I'm going to give you a foretaste of what to do with this sacrifice. So the children of Israel, of course, do that, and then God instills this feast that they celebrate every single year, and some Christians choose to celebrate that in a commemorative way. Um, I try to do it. I'm not a big fan of horseradish, to be honest with you, so uh, that's a little spicy on the tongue. But anyways, that's another story that's part of it. So what happens, though, is that in the Passover, now fast forward into the New Testament time. And here at the temple, rather than lambs coming in, people bring it, there was religious people that began to realize, we can make a business out of this thing. This is great. Because these people are now obligated because they believe in God and they know God says to fulfill this every year. So what are we going to do? Charge them money. We're going to sell little pigeons. We're going to sell birds and we're going to sell lamb and sheep. And when they come in, not only are we going to just sell them, but we understand from this story is that they raise the price um, ex- like when you're at the beach and you pay $6 or actually PNC field, you pay $6 for a bottled water, six bucks for a bottled water. And as it goes down, you, you come, like you, you're there and it's like $12 for nachos and you think this is wrong and they search you on the way in and they make you pay to get in. It's like, what? This, so what happens is people were traveling from everywhere to Jerusalem, to the temple. And what the religious leaders of the day realize is, you know what we can do? Let's jack the prices up. It's real easy. Raise the prices. And when we raise the prices, now people have no other choice than to pay something way over, overstated because they have to obey God. So what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up, rolls a whip, which I just think is pretty phenomenal. He made a whip, comes back, and just unleashes I love that because, you know, there's really only two times in the scripture uh, when God is expressing himself through the person of Jesus Christ as angry. And both of them are selling God short of who he is by putting limitations on him and making man the hero of the story and not God. I love this. 
Jesus shows up and he gets angry. What infuriates him? He starts flipping over these tables. Birds are flying everywhere. Sheep are running. I don't know what the sheep made. They're out of there. <laughs> I don't know what a sheep says when it's, when it's running. <laughs> it's, it's those cute little, it's hopping, right? And the sheep are going nuts. Coins are flying everywhere. And in that moment, Jesus looks at everybody and goes, don't make my father's house a house of trade. Oh man, I love this. Why? Because here's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ is, you can never negotiate with God. You can never buy his affirmation. You can do nothing but earn it by sheer grace. Religion says I can negotiate, I can barter, but negotiation says this, that the other party needs something that you have. It's like when you go to the yard sales. We've got a house that's right down the street from us. It, if, in case you're wondering, it'll have a yard sale for the next six months every day. Nonstop yard sale. And it's the stuff, no, I think it's the stuff that everyone else got rid of at the end of the yard sale. They take that and then re-yard sale it so it's like an overdubbed yard sale. When you show up in that yard sale, my grandma, you know, will come home with like a whole like carload of stuff. She's like, I got this for 50 cents. What? People just love, how many people love yard sailing? How many people can't stand yard sailing? All right, we'll hang out together. All right, I'm not, I'm not a big fan. I'm that guy, I'm that 25-year-old guy, or 24, I don't even know what age. I'm, I'm the one that's sitting in the mall when the wife's shopping. I'm, it's just, I take after my grandpa. He sits in the parking lot and listens to the Yankees games. I just can't do it. It's just a lot. It's just too much. I support it. I just can't participate in it. All right? But, but what, what happens here, though, is that this idea of trade, when you negotiate, when you show up at a yard sale, you pull out those, you got that holster of quarters. And you look at it. And I love, like, the stare down, the Western stare down that goes on. You know what it is. When you walk in and you almost have to play like you're not interested. And you see the bookshelf. And you make eye contact with that shelf and then you make eye contact with the person. And then you turn away quickly and go, hmm, I'm not really interested. And then you come back and you go, it's seven bucks. Seven bucks for that. Do you realize that's used? I'll give you two. Four. I really don't want it for four. I'll give you two. Two fifty deal. And you kind of get into this negotiating thing where you recognize that both parties want something and in in essence need something. They need to get rid of something and you want something and they need your money. And it's really this negotiation, this transaction that takes place. But when Jesus says, don't make my house uh, a house of trade, what he's saying is that God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. Therefore, we have to understand what is the point of worship. What's the point of worship? What's the point of the Passover? If God's not in need of anything, he later on in one of the other synoptic gospels mentioned it as a house of robbers, a den of thieves. I would say this, that any explanation of Christianity that does not put the onus on the finished work of Christ and puts the energy on humanity is a thief and a robber of the gospel. Anything that exalts our humanity and makes us a demigod or some other god that competes with or rivals with what Christ has done is a thief and a robber. Because it misrepresents who Christ is. He simply says this, take these things away, don't make my father's house a house of trade. I want to encourage you as we look at this text and we think back to Haggai, how do you interact with God? 
How do you interact with him in prayer, in life, in devotion? What does that really look like for you? When something goes wrong, do you start to navel-gaze and go, what did I do wrong? Grace is the opposite of karma. Karma is not Christianity. Christianity is not when I do bad, I get bad, and when I do good, I get good. Christianity is we're sinners and we're redeemed for free. If we interact with God on a basis of our merit or a basis of our good works, in essence, what we say is simply this, my blood is stronger than the blood of Jesus. I'm so thankful that I don't have to trade with God. I don't have to negotiate. I don't have to serve him, therefore he approves of me. The gospel's this, that while we were yet sinners and dead in our trespasses and sin, Christ died for us. What good news. So now that we've looked at the way not to, turn over with me to the book of Acts very quickly. This is the last part of what we're working through. So what does a church look like? What is a, what is a temple that God desires? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We started off in the book of Haggai. We see God says, I want a temple. We fast forward into the book of John, and we see people take something that's good that God created, and what do they do? They turn it into a money-making way. And that's why I'll say it even in this moment. This is why every Sunday when we take up an offering, we explicitly say we give because we're being generous, not out of obligation. You're not obligated to give. Every Sunday, you're going to hear us say that. You're not obligated to give because we recognize the goal is not giving X amount of dollars. The goal is understanding the gospel. And I promise if you get that, you'll buy into the vision here. So what is the right? What is the new bliss, if you will? What is the bliss that God shows us? In Acts chapter 2, after Jesus is resurrected in the book of Acts, the early church, verse 42, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. In other words, they devoted themselves really primarily to two things, the scripture and community. They, they, they dedicated themselves not to show up, read the Bible, but to the fellowship. Breaking of the bread. That's actually not in reference to communion there. Most people think that that's actually just eating food together, which is a great way to get to know people. This is what church is supposed to look like. Very simple. Dedicated to the scripture fellowshipping with believers, and then verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had any need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love this. You don't see all these hoops people are jumping through. You don't see this. This is, what, this is the model of church. If you just do this, this, this. It, it's not that at all. This is it. Simply, they dedicated themselves to the gospel. God moved miraculously by his spirit. He was doing something that people couldn't do. That's the purpose of miracles and healings and things like that. It's not to bring attention to ourselves. It's to show that God's in our midst. God's doing something actively. They met together in homes. They broke bread and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You know, the only way that any of that can happen, the only way that we can actually 
receive food and give away. It says anybody that had a need, they just gave to. I love, you know, Will had uh, a need for going to Zambia. And it was just awesome to see the way that, that the Lord's provided stuff for him. You know, thankfully, Will didn't bust out the thermometer on stage. Whoa, watch it rise. Every week comes up and Will bumps the thermometer. I mean, if you've got to do a thermometer, I understand. Not against him. I'm just very against him. But if you, <laughs> you know, he didn't do that. He, he, didn't, he didn't have to do that. He just said, I've got a need. Martin and Keeling have a need. I love that. I wonder how many other people here have needs. You have real genuine needs. And that as a church, when I say church, I'm not talking about a bank account. I'm talking about churches and people. We should help one another. What does this thing look like? I, I, they helped all things in common, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to anyone who had a need. That's a really radical type faith. That's a type of faith that doesn't make sense. This is why we preach grace so strongly. Because religion will never get us to that point. Religion will never get us eating with generous hearts and taking food and seeing people add to this thing. Religion will say, before you come into the door, if you can clean up, if you can do this, if you can do that, then you're welcome to come in. But the gospel's not that. The gospel's not a house of trade. It's not a negotiation effort. It's simply God, through Christ Jesus, is our Passover lamb. This morning, we're closing right now. So just in case you're wondering, if I say that again twice, then I'm lying. Everyone's, everyone's like, why? how can we listen to a preacher that lies every Sunday? He keeps saying he's closing and he talks for another half hour. <laughs> I've always wondered that. We're closing. We're closing. We're closing. I get to the point when he says we're closing, I recognize I better go to the bathroom because we've got another lap to go around. <laughs> we find ourselves in this room in the same place as the children of Israel, people of the New Testament, and people that don't even know Christ. We all find ourselves in the same place. God, in his gracious mercy, is holding back his righteousness. Holding back his righteousness at this present time, according to the book of Romans, so that people will have as long as they can to repent. Now, repent doesn't mean beating your chest, tearing your clothes. Please don't. Repentance means changing our mind, accepting Christ. God, in his mercy, is holding back as long as he can. And if the scripture says he's slow to anger, quick to mercy. I love that. But yet every single one of us will, in some sense or another, be um, paid back for or held accountable to what we've done, in some sense or another. Every single one of us. At that point, we find ourselves in the same place, really, as people walking into the temple in Jesus' day. Before you this morning is not a house of trade. It's simply this. Christ will forgive you, and he'll be your Passover lamb. He'll be the thing that God looks at and passes right over you. Or the other option, and I'm not saying this out of fear, the other option is simply this. We stand before God and we say, I can reach your standard. It's really one of those two paths. This morning, I'm not going to say, you've got to do this, this, this to become a Christian because that's a den of thieves and it's, it's robbing you. 
I simply want to say this, that whether you've come to Christ or not come to Christ, it simply revolves around grace. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not talking about hippie, hippie Jesus, where he's peace like with everybody. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor, where he looks at your life and you can say, Jesus, will you be my Passover lamb? Will you be my sacrifice? That when God looks at my standard of righteousness, he sees his and not mine. This morning, we don't just do that one time. It's not when I'm six years old, I go, I'm scared of hell. Let me run down the aisle. That's not it. Whether you've been a Christian for one week, 50 years, or yet to believe, it always revolves around God's grace and not our negotiation. Why? According to Paul the Apostle, he's not a God that lives in a temple served by human hands as though he needs anything. For in him you live, you move, and you have your being. This morning, whether you realize it or not, whether you're the most um, hostile person towards faith, I'm so thankful that God's sustaining common grace is giving you breath in your lungs right now. What good news we have this morning. Can we stand up, if that's okay? Uh, Let's have the worship team come forward, and we'll close very briefly with a song. My hope is today, very, very clearly, that you understood the gospel, that you understood that you can't negotiate with God. I remember talking with someone uh, a while ago, and they're like, you know, I'm just going to, I just want to clean my life up first. I just got to get a couple things together before I come to God. That makes you your functional savior. If you have the ability to clean yourself up before coming to God, functionally, you've become your own savior. You said, I'll save myself, and then I'll pass my salvation on to Jesus to, I guess, do the rest. No matter if we're perfect in our own sight or we're totally broken, Christ offers forgiveness and a new way of life, enjoying him. Let's sing together, and we'll close in prayer.